I'm Brian Barnett. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a doctor. I have no legal license in any field of psychology. But I did live a large part of my life with borderline personality disorder unknowingly. And I really did rid myself of the disorder completely and permanently. Through that, I've become an expert on issues involving emotional health. I accept no responsibility whatsoever for your feelings, thoughts, behaviors, decisions, and actions, including your decision to watch or listen to this show at all. But I do hope you might benefit yourself from the insights I share. Happy Thursday, everybody. Actually, it's Friday for me. It might be any day, depending on the day that you're choosing to listen to this. Nice to have you back with me again this week. I, uh, I'm pretty tired. I'm, I'm worn down, and I'm looking for, forward to a weekend of doing not a whole lot. A couple things before we get started. I got my doors open and the wind is blowing through. I'm not willing to close my doors to cut out that any sound that that might create because it's just so pleasant. It's November and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful day today. Mid-70s. Oh, there we go. A lot of wind right there. That's rare. That type of burst is rare. But it's so beautiful. Uh, the leaves have not quite completely fallen off the trees. Uh, they have mostly, but there's just a few uh, stragglers, and it's just a beautiful, kind of creates a beautiful ambiance. So because I'm worn out, let me tell you why I'm worn out. I'm uh, re-recording all the video for the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, that, that intense two-week course that you can sign up for over at thelastsymptom.com. When I originally recorded that, I did it through Zoom, and uh, the video and audio quality was not always up to my preferred standards. So I've been updating that whole thing, and it's required a lot of work every night for for me. And uh, I've had a lot of work on top of that. So, <laughs> you know, how do I explain it to some? If you folks aren't <laughs> don't have your own podcast or anything like that. Uh, let me explain to you that when I'm on camera or when I'm recording my voice or anything like that, it's work. It's a lot of work. And then afterwards, there's a lot of editing that goes into it. But just the the being put on the spot of being on camera and you know having to choose your words very um, purposefully with everything I say, uh, it's not the same as if I'm just sitting in my underwear, you know, in my in my room talking to somebody on the phone. It's uh, it's a lot different. It's a lot more formal, and I know that might sound like a funny word to use for uh, for what we do here, because you know I'm I'm kind of a laid back kind of guy anyway, and not formal by nature. But just think about any time you're put on the spot to get up in front of people and talk. It's it's not the same as if you're just sitting around chatting with buddies, is it? And so every time I'm on camera, every time I'm recording my voice into a microphone for thousands of other people to hear, it's it's work. Uh, you know, 
it's I'm not anxious I am I ain't nervous but I am trying to maintain a certain amount of decorum and create a presentation right and that's work so it just wears me out so when I do when I update a chapter on the last symptom fundamentals course that's me sitting there for an hour hour and a half talking into the camera and talking to people talking to lots of people that's exhausting and then I get done and I go to edit everything that takes up most of my next day and then that evening I'm sitting down to record again again in front of a lot of people in front of the camera and it just it's exhausting so I slept in this morning <laughs> to try to to get my energy back and I slightly considered not putting out a, a show this week but I said you know what I've got a lot of folks who will appreciate me putting out anything whether it's profoundly insightful or not and they'd probably just like to hear what I've been up to do a check-in like that know what's going on in my life I've got my buddy coming over tonight um, oh that's another thing I decided to do this this updating of the last symptom fundamentals course right during the World Series and so I've been trying to catch as much of the World Series as I can of baseball and the Phillies of course and Astros are playing in the World Series and the Phillies are one of my two favorite teams so that has really thrown a wrench into things too I if I could do it over again I probably wouldn't have re, uh, started updating the last symptom fundamentals course until after the World Series was passed but <clears throat> got my friend uh, Jeffrey coming over tonight we're gonna play cards drink some Mr. Hooch and uh, talk about some backpacking plans that are coming up here very soon I, I'm really looking forward to that some of you might remember that I missed a big backpacking trip I had planned back in May and so uh, this is gonna hopefully compensate for that I, I would pr I prefer backpacking this time of year anyway when it's cold uh, especially cold at nights and uh, kind of mild during midday uh, that's just perfect for me and also this time of year you don't run into a lot, whole lot of other people so I'm looking forward to that got a few things to talk about before we get started uh, let's do the announcements the announcements are thelastsymptom.com that's my website full of free and paid resources the free resources I'm happy to provide I, I really am the paid resources of course offer uh, support they, they support financially what I do so run over there to thelastsymptom.com take advantage of the free resources and of course check out the uh, the paid resources see if there's anything there that uh, you might benefit from uh, that might support my work of course if you're in our online community over there at locals just being a supporter on locals does support my work so there's no need for you to feel like you need to give me a, a contribution a financial contribution every month if as long as you're a, a supporter on our locals group because that does financially support my work and it comes with benefits so the way you join our online community over there we're over 8,000 strong now 
is you go to thelastsymptom.locals.com or you download the locals.com app from the app store and you search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett. All right, a few things here. Do you ever uh, make yourself eggs? Do you like eggs? How do you prepare your eggs? Do you like them scrambled? Do you like them over easy? Do you like them sunny side up? Well, I like my eggs either sunny side up or over easy. Usually sunny side up because I like the yolk and I like to toast some bread and then I like to dip my bread in the in the yolk. When you're making your eggs, do you ever break the yolk? You ever have your heart set on a nice couple of eggs sunny side up or over easy and do you ever break the yolk man that's frustrating isn't it in fact the other day I was making myself breakfast and uh, sat down to to cook some eggs and uh, three eggs in a row I broke the yolk before I even got them into the pan man that's frustrating well I've learned a way that you can make sure that you can crack the egg without ever risking breaking the yolk. Would you like to know my secret? Yes, it'll work every time. The only thing you have to do is start off intending to make scrambled eggs. <laughs> and it works. I'll tell you, it does work. And the reason why I think it works is because you loosen up. You say, you know, I'm, I'm making scrambled eggs, so it doesn't matter if I break the yolk. And so the way you, you go about cracking the egg then is with no uh, anxiety or no tenseness, and it works every time. So if you want nice pair of eggs sunny side up, just go into the process intending to make scrambled eggs. Have you heard about this pilot here? Um, where was this? North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. Charles Hugh Crooks is his name. They spent the day uh, piloting parachuters. And then what happened was they were coming back for a landing, and this Charles Hugh Crooks was just a young guy, 25 years old, I think, something like that. He was the co-pilot. As they're coming down for a landing, he, he does it wrong, and he messes up their landing gear. So they go, wow, we're, our landing gear's messed up. We're going to have to fly to a, a different airport and make an emergency landing. And about 20 minutes into the flight, old Charles Hugh Crooks becomes very upset. And he says, uh, first of all, he opens up a window. And they, they think he, he got sick. He opened up the window because he was getting sick. But then he apologizes to the pilot says he needs to step out and he walks to the back of the plane where they got the the back hatch open on the plane and he just jumps out jumps out and dies let me read this to you this is from uh, meaww.com you can there's all kinds of articles about this but when when this this happened over the summer and then I I said, boy, I need to follow this. I need to follow this as more details come out because obviously it deals with emotional issues, doesn't it? This was not a this was not a decision made 
on his part with critical thought or rationale. And it's interesting that um, the pilot, a after Charles jumps out of the plane, the pilot lands the plane fine. He got a couple bumps on him and a couple scratches, but walked away fine. According to a report by NTSB, Charles Crooks lowered the ramp in the back of the airplane, indicating that he felt like he was going to be sick and needed air. Raleigh, North Carolina, a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board, that's the NTSB, has disclosed that a North Carolina co-pilot who plunged to his death from a plane was distressed over losing the aircraft's right main landing gear. Charles Hugh Crooks died on July 29th after falling from the CASA 212 he was flying along with a pilot. His body was later found behind a house near Sunset Lake and Hilltop Needlemore Roads. The report said that Charles and the pilot in command had done two skydiving runs and were about to do a third one as they jetted back to uh, an airport when the craft's right main landing gear got defunct during a hard landing. Oh, he wasn't even 25, he was 23. At the time, the 23-year-old was in charge, as told by the main pilot to the NTSB. The main pilot, whose name has not been revealed, also claimed that he then took charge of the small plane and commanded Charles to announce an emergency, as well as ask for a diversion to Raleigh-Durham International Airport for landing. However, minutes after that, the young man become visibly upset, the report citing the pilot mentioned. It also noted that Charles unfastened the side cockpit window and may have gotten sick, before adding that eventually the unnamed pilot had to manage radio communication as well, as Charles got up from his seat, removed his headset, apologized, and departed the airplane via the aft ramp door. 911 calls and radio traffic showed that the pilot had informed about Charles falling from the aircraft without a parachute. After the plane landed at the airport, the pilot was moved to Duke Hospital. This is the, the main pilot. There was substantial damage to the landing gear. Only days before his death, Charlie shared with his parents that he was exactly where he wanted to be, doing exactly what he wanted, what he wanted to do. Not many get the chance to live that way. Somebody's chainsaw and some firewood, sounds like. Well, what do you reckon happened? To really get an insightful understanding of what probably happened, you got to put yourself in Charles' shoes. 23-year-old flying this plane. They go for a landing, and they crumple the landing gear. It's interesting to me that he didn't just, as soon as the landing gear crumpled, he didn't jump up and say, hey, I'm out of here, sorry about everything, and jump out the back. He sat there for 20 minutes as they're flying. Now, what's going on through Charles' mind? Charles is thinking about the, in his mind, inevitable crash, right, when they get to the next airport. And as time is passing and as they're flying and his mind and his feelings are, are going over this, this tragic possibility, 
he's getting more and more frightened and more and more um, hopeless until he, he, he can't take it anymore. He says, I can't, I can't take the dread of what might happen and I need to, I need to make a decision now. And that's when he excuses himself and jumps out the back of the plane. This is really a discussion, ain't it, about how feelings don't determine reality. Think about how much we torture ourselves so many times. I was telling somebody the other day that when I was a, in my 20s, I was playing around with, I think I was eating popcorn. And I was trying to get popcorn out of my mouth. You know how when you eat popcorn, then you've got like all this thing get stuck in your teeth. And I was cleaning my mouth out of, uh, the popcorn out of my mouth with my tongue. And I felt a lump on the bottom of my mouth. I thought, what is that? And once I, once I focused on that lump, I could not stop thinking about it. Of course, I had borderline personality disorder back in. Had my, you know, I was living with an emotional disorder and had not yet sorted out a lot of my emotional issues. But my tongue settled on that, and I, I just couldn't stop touching it with my tongue, and couldn't stop thinking about it. And a couple weeks went by. I kept putting my tongue down there and feeling that lump. And I had convinced myself that I had this tumor in my mouth big cancerous tumor in my mouth it was a hard rock hard lump and finally I said something to somebody I, I remember I think I said it to my, my mother I said you know I got a big lump in my mouth it's uh, it's it's pretty big and I, I think I need to go to the doctor for it she said well yeah do that so I made a doctor's appointment and then for the week or so that I had to wait for the doctor's appointment, again, I was just, I couldn't sleep at night. I was just terrified. I kept putting my tongue down there. I had, I was certain by the time I got to that doctor's appointment that I was going to have to have this really intense surgery. I was going to be deformed or I was going to die. I, was, I had all these things going through my mind, but I had convinced myself. Got to the doctor. He takes a look at it and he goes, yeah. Uh, everybody's got that. <laughs> everybody's got their, that in their mouth. It's a natural part of human anatomy. So if you feel down at the bottom, the, like the bottom palate of your mouth, you've got two bumps underneath where your tongue uh, lies. And uh, that's what I was feeling. Oh, the relief. Now we go back to Charles Hugh Crooks. Are you beginning to understand what probably happened? What was probably going on inside of him? His feelings and his fear worked up worked up a reality for him that was not reality, but it becomes so real to him within those 20 minutes that he said there's no I can't take it. I can't take the fear of this anymore of what might happen when we try to land at this other airport. And so what did he do? He just jumped out. He <laughs> brought an end to himself. He could have landed that plane and walked away with maybe a bruise on his elbow. 
Instead, he jumped out without a parachute and died. I don't have a, a great, huge outline developed around this or anything, but you can take this, this real-life story and analyze it and learn things about yourself. Use it to improve your life moving forward. How often do you do your feel and say, oh, I'm, I'm certain about a thing, I'm certain about it, got to make these decisions, and, um, and then later you really regret those decisions, don't you? I tell people, never make, an, never make big decisions when your emotions are volatile. I don't care how long it takes, don't do it. Don't do it. The studies have been shown that when people are upset, in their brains, uh, the studies have shown that it blocks off uh, reason and critical thought. So when your emotions are very volatile, it actually drowns out your ability to think critically and clearly. So what's the only answer then for when your emotions are volatile and you've got and you feel like you have to make decisions right now? Don't do it. Don't do it. That's a it's a major adjustment I've made in my life since I've become healthy. First of all, to you have to be aware that your emotions are volatile. You have to be aware that you are under intense stress or you're intensely angry or you're intensely sad or any of these things. These are all intense, high-powered, volatile emotions, right? Not the time to be making important decisions. So what do you do? you wait that's what you do you wait you wait a day well let's say you wait an hour and after an hour your emotions still have not completely calmed down so you wait another hour you wait a day if you have to what happens if the next day when you think about this thing that you're upset about your emotions are still volatile wait another day I don't care if it takes a whole month. You don't make big decisions while your emotions are volatile. Not long ago, I told you all about a, a letter I got from my dad. Remember that? If you've listened to every episode up to now, you, you, you'll remember that. Got that letter. I was angry about it. I was angry and bothered by it. And do you remember what I told you I was going to do and what I did? I told you I was not going to make any decisions about how to handle that situation until my emotions had calmed down. And it took, if I remember right, it took a little bit over a week for my emotions to calm down. And once I knew that my emotions were no longer involved, I knew that was then the time to think about how to handle that situation and, and what decision to make regarding that and you know at that time the thing that my emotions wanted me to do was to write a, a reply letter immediately or to go out there to where he lives or to call him or it, that that's what my emotions wanted me to do and it felt right it felt right it felt like yes this is the right way to handle that but I know from experience and from my recovery don't trust anything 
that you believe is the right course of action while your emotions are volatile. Because once your emotions are, are calm and out of the picture, inevitably you will look back and go, whew, everything I wanted to do and, and seemed like the greatest idea in the world at the time would have been the stupidest, dumbest way to handle that situation. So ultimately what I did with my father there was nothing. You see, my emotions wanted me to act, to write a letter, to respond, to reply, to do all these things. And then once my emotions were no longer in the picture and I could think perfectly clearly without their influence, I saw that that was that what my feelings wanted me to do would have been the absolute worst course of action. The only right course of action was to do nothing absolutely nothing to not respond in any way to not acknowledge the letter in any way what if Charles Hugh Crooks had not acted on his feelings that's that's what he did when he jumped out the back of that airplane right he acted on his feelings he allowed his feelings to determine the truth for him so he based his decision making based on his feelings and it brought him to his death what if Charles Hugh Crooks would have said to himself my feelings are really really volatile right now they're really telling me all sorts of things <clears throat> they're yeah, I'm, I'm fearing the worst here fearing the worst possible everything I don't want to end up in a plane crash all mangled and everything I I can't have that happen to me. What if he would have said, he would have caught himself, said, my, my emotions are very volatile. I can't make a decision while my emotions are volatile, no matter what. Because of that, it's best for me to just try to land this plane. And who knows what might happen. But what I know for sure is I can't trust my emotions in this situation. What if he had done that? They would have landed the plane. He would have gone to the hospital, gotten a Band-Aid on a scratch, and then he possibly could have learned from that. He, pro he possibly could have learned the same thing I'm teaching you guys right now. Never trust your feelings. And then think about after, after that experience, him thinking back to, man, I was going to jump out of that airplane. Oh my gosh, I was going to jump out of that airplane. How dumb would that have been? How foolish. Do you think he would have felt some relief and learned something from that? Well, I hope so. And it's a t it's tragedy. It's just a tragedy the way that that played out. So, guys, girls, don't ever don't ever make big decisions when your emotions are volatile. Don't ever trust your feelings to determine realities for you or to base important decisions on. It can kill you. Really can't, or it can get somebody else hurt, or it can result in um, irreversible decisions. Think about how many partners, in the heat of a, a vicious argument, decide that they're going to go through with a divorce. That's not the time to decide on a divorce when you're when you're screaming at each other kicking doors in and 
punching the wall and stuff like that. That is not the time to decide on a a life changing thing such as a divorce. The time to decide on something like that is when you're perfectly calm and your feelings are not informing you. They're not influencing you. Where you can sit with a clear mind and, and look at the situation and say, this is the right course of action. I know it. I'm calm. I'm thinking clearly. I won't have any regrets about this later. It's, it is the right thing to do. How about um, cutting your parents out of your life? When is the time to make that decision? When they've really ticked you off? When you're really upset with them? When you're pacing around the house with your fists clenched? That's not the time to make a decision like that. Time to make a decision like that, and it might be the right decision to cut them out of your life. It might be the right decision to get a divorce. But the right time to make that decision is when you're perfectly calm. You clearly, logically, with critical thinking, understand the reasons why it must be that way. That's the time to make a decision like that. Not when you're angry. Not when you're completely depressed or you know deeply depressed uh, not when your feelings are volatile like that or or in an extreme place on the last uh, episode of the show I talked I brought up it, it was a live stream and I brought up about how one of our the members of our community had talked about how her father had made her feel ashamed of how she felt at that moment and feeling even more humiliation showing it and how I could completely identify with that. She really put perfectly into words my experience with my own dad, how he would beat me down and make me feel humiliated, humiliated for feeling things, and then even more humiliated because I couldn't contain those feelings from being visible to others. Because she's able to explain this, so articulate this so well, it's clear to me she understands the nature of it, and it's a good thing. It means she's on the right path to identifying how that affected her, the messages within that, and undoing it. We can reject messages like that. Can't turn off the feelings. But once we know the messages that the feelings are telling us, we can mentally reject the messages, can't we? She went on to say about two years ago, I found out about the my, her disorder. She says, I remember thinking there's no way out. And then she discovered my work. She said uh, while she was doing that search, she saw everybody talking about it, it kind of in the same ways, same superficial ways. All this talk about how it's impossible to cure that lie. She said, however, when I read your articles, I was blown. My mind was blown. This guy knows what he's talking about. Without understanding, she didn't understand. Here's the interesting thing. She didn't understand, of course, all the insights at the time. But she identified that I did know what I was talking about. And so she started following, started learning. She said then, my only regret is not committing 100% to your work then. It was only this September I got serious. 
and these six months have completely changed me drastically and provided me a new understanding on life. I wanted to comment for a second about the fact that she says, boy, looking back, if only I had um, really started the work earlier. And that's a common theme among people I talk to. Oh, if I only I had known this sooner. If only I had started this sooner. So I wanted to comment a little bit on that. Because it's human nature to think that way. And even I sometimes think, what if I had known the things that I learned that, you know, really led to my authentic recovery? What if I had known that 10 years earlier? Well, like I say, that's a natural way to think. It's a natural human tendency to think that way. But the timing is always right. The timing for these things is always right. It's never wrong. If you think about my example, for example, if I had discovered these things 10 years earlier in my life, would it have mattered? Would it have made any difference? No, it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered. In fact, if I had discovered it 10 years earlier, maybe I wouldn't be here now. Why is that? It's because of readiness. It's because of readiness. When a person is ready for the information, inherently, what it means when a person is ready is that they are receptive and they act, they, they identify what they're hearing as being of high value, and then they act on it, and they change. I'm not convinced that I didn't come across at some time in my life earlier than, than when my recovery started. I didn't come across the same concepts, but if I, weren't read, if I was not ready for the concepts, what, what happened? They just went right over my head. I wasn't willing to hear it. I wasn't willing to see it. I wasn't willing to think about it. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready then. Becoming fully ready is sometimes a process that we have to work up to. I always use diets as a good analogy. If I commit to a diet before I'm really ready, I won't end up following through with the diet very well, will I? I know this because I really need to go on a diet right now. I've been, I've just been not very strict with myself about what I've been eating lately. And so I tell myself, you know, I need to lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds. Um, I'm going to start this Monday. I am going to start this Monday. But in the lead up to Monday, I don't really change my habits. I don't really try to uh, change my mindset. I, I kind of uh, keep going business as usual right up until Sunday night. I stay up too late Sunday night until 3 o'clock in the morning eating cheesy poofs and drinking Mountain Dew. And then the next day, I, I'm not primed for that diet, am I? I might start with a healthy breakfast might even make it through a healthy lunch but by supper time I'm already off the diet because even though on some level I, 
I, I, I do want to diet. I see the need to diet. I wasn't ready, was I? I, I really, I didn't ready myself. So when I say this, when I use this, these, this wording, if I commit to a diet before I'm really ready, <laughs> that's really a nonsense, nonsensical statement, isn't it? Because if I'm not really ready, I'm not committed. So I'm using commit incorrectly, aren't I? When a person is committed, that means they are committed. They're, they're going to follow through. So there's really no such thing as committing to something before you're ready. It's, it's a fake commitment, and it's not a real commitment. It's, it's more like wishful thinking is what it is. But if I say to myself, I want to start a diet and I'm not ready, then I won't end up following through very well. So for success, what I typically do in a, for a diet is I'll typically go through a process of building up my resolve, making a specific plan, picking a specific start date, not just picking a specific start date, but in the days leading up to that date, I will begin priming myself for the diet. So I'll start cutting back on the junk food. I'll start cutting down on my calories. I'll start drinking more water, things like that, so that when that date comes, I'm, I'm ready. I'm already primed and ready for real. So often committing to recovery is a lot like that process. The point is, is that before a person is ready, nothing's going to happen. So it's not, it's not constructive. It's wind's blowing dirt into my eye here. <coughs> Boy, it is beautiful out there, I'll tell you. I hope the wind is not disturbing this episode too much. But gosh, it sure feels nice to sit here and feel that that breeze on me mm. so good got my coffee here got good company got my stomach making some noises it must oh it's all this talk about dieting and lunch and everything um really the point is it's not constructive to look back in time and go boy let's say you're 50 years old boy if i only i had learned this in my 30s let me tell you, you weren't ready in your 30s. You weren't ready in your 30s. You would not have accepted it. You would have not have absorbed it. You would not have latched onto it. Things happened for you. And I, and I, this is not a discussion about fate. I don't believe in fate at all. It's not a discussion about fate. I'm simply saying that as far as readiness, you weren't ready. Things had to occur as they have for you to right now be ready right you had to suffer enough you had to have ex enough experiences you had to get to a point where you were tired of really it's you had to get to a point where the quote unquote imaginary rewards of being unhealthy were less attractive to you than change right so things had to happen the way they have happened for you to be here now. Same thing with me. I can look back into the past with some regret and go, boy, just think of all the pain and heartache that I could have avoided, 
creating for myself and for others, if I had just known this stuff 10 years earlier, it wouldn't have worked 10 years earlier. Everything had to happen the way it happened for me to be here now. I had to suffer those things. I had to hurt people that way. And then I had to live to regret it. I had to learn, I had to get to a place where I was ready. And what was involved in me becoming ready? All of that stuff. All of that stuff was involved in me becoming ready. Now here's another thing about readiness. Sometimes it's, let's go back to talking about the boxer that I bring up every once in a while. He gets punched so hard, he falls down to the mat. He doesn't just hop right up, even though he's seeing double and everything. What does he do? He stays on the mat to regain some strength, to kind of regain his bearings, regain his strength. He's listening to the count. One, two, three, and he might go all the way up to nine before he gets to his, his feet, right? Immediately after my huge borderline personality disorder crisis, I needed that time. So for, oh, probably a couple years, I was like that boxer, just regaining some strength. So I might have been ready then. I was ready then. I just didn't have the strength. I, I needed time to regain my strength, some strength, and to regain my spirit, but for that couple of years, I the breath was completely knocked out of me. So I needed time to just not care. Keep that in mind when you're talk when we're talking about readiness. When you're ready, when you're not ready. Crushing pain or circumstances involving high stress, things like this. Sometimes a boxer who just gets punched in the nose and knocked down needs to do nothing catch his breath or her breath before he or she can really get started and it's nothing there's nothing wrong with that the important thing is intention uh, endurance a stick-to-itiveness a, a not giving up you know the, the whole rocky attitude you get knocked down you but you're not out right you're you're just biding your time for a minute or two to catch your breath so that you can get back up and get into the fight. That also is important in any discussion about readiness. So I hope you understand what I'm saying. You might... Well, have you ever heard the expression, the, the spirit is willing but the, the flesh is weak? You might have have um, concrete intentions for your recovery, but you just might be worn out, emotionally and physically worn out. So you might need some time to just languish for a while until you can build up some energy. And that process should not go on indefinitely. But it can definitely take a year or two sometimes, as it did in my case. Then the person I'm talking to here says, 
I always wonder if it's fair to have kids. Boy, we're going from one topic to another here, aren't we? Talked about several different things. Now we're going to talk about having kids. I always wonder if it's fair to have kids without truly knowing the emotional issues it are resolved. I know you said you'll know when you no longer see yourself as unworthy, unlovable, blah, blah, blah. It's all so exhausting but necessary. So you understand what she's saying? She's saying, when is the right time to have kids? Is the right time to decide to have kids? This is for people who do not have kids and who are working on their emotional health. Do you necessarily have to wait until all of your emotional issues are completely and fully resolved? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I didn't. And I'm the best father I know. And I say that with no no narcissism, no sense of uh, arrogance. I, I just simply am the best father that I know. And I decided to, to become a father when I was still dealing with some of these issues. The reason why I decided on it, though, is because I had made so many gains and there was no doubt in my mind that I was on the right path, I was moving forward, there was no going back. So there were some things still yet for me to uh, to work out of my system and to identify and address. But I had come so far, I knew there was no turning back, I knew I was on the right path, there was no doubt in my mind about it, and I had complete reliable faith. I say faith, but too many people think that faith refers to just a, a blind belief in a thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I could see for a certainty that I was going to get where I wanted to be. So faith is not a blind certainty. Uh, faith is not a blind certainty or blind um, belief in a thing. Faith is based on evidence. You, you are certain, you are convinced of a thing. That's faith. Faith is not like, well, I believe in the tooth fairy and in unicorns, therefore they're, they're real. They're real to me. That's my truth. That's not faith. That is somebody using their feelings to determine reality for them. It's denial is what it is. What I'm talking about is with hard, reliable evidence you're convinced that a thing is true you are convinced of a thing and so I had come so far I could see the results of everything that I was doing I knew I was moving in the right direction and I said to myself I'm at the tail end of this thing I'm I'm about to turn 40 now's a good time now's a really good time by the time my daughter comes here I may be completely free of this stuff altogether but you know, the reality is that there's no such thing as a, the perfect parent who knows all the answers and never makes any mistakes. Even today, I'm not that guy. Even me saying that I'm the best father I know, that is not the same as me saying that I know everything and I never make mistakes. A good parent understands the fundamental principles and laws of emotional health, has a proper attitude and perspective towards feelings, self, and life, and is working hard to live in harmony with those things. 
a good parent understands that in every interaction with their children they're communicating messages yes even when I look at my daughter just the way I look at her I'm communicating messages when she comes to talk to me and show me something the way I react to that do I put what I'm doing down and give her my attention that is a message that she's receiving from me do I not put what I'm doing down do I continue doing what I'm doing and just kind of half-heartedly yeah uh uh-huh uh-huh that also is a message that she is getting from me my neighbor over there is having a an emphysema attack or something so good parents understand that in every interaction with their kids they're communicating messages messages that their children will adopt and use to understand life understand reality so though a good parent may not always get everything exactly exactly right he or she understands the healthy principles and laws involved and this means that mistakes aren't really that big of a deal why do I say that mistakes aren't that really that big of a deal when you're a healthy parent because when mistakes are made the healthy parent realizes the unhealthy messages they've communicated to their children and then can sit their children down and explain why that wasn't right and effectively negate any harm that could be caused there. When I make a mistake with my daughter, the conversation I have with her afterwards is not the, is not like this. Honey, I made a big mistake. I'm sorry about that. That's not the type of conversation I have with her. When I make a mistake with my daughter, the nature of the conversation goes like this. Honey, I made a mistake. Let me tell you why it was a mistake. It was a mistake because... I should have considered your feelings before I said that. I should have dignified you and get, had given, have given you an opportunity to answer some questions that I might have before I decided that I knew the situation is uh, fully. So clearly I did not understand the situation fully. I jumped to conclusions and that was not right of me. What I should have done is thought to myself is this fair has Eloise had an opportunity to explain herself and that's that's what I did wrong honey that's what I'm going to do different moving forward you see what does the message so even though I made a mistake what is the message in the way that I've addressed the mistake the message is your feelings do matter the mistake was that I did not dignify you as a person I had a temporary lapse in judgment and I failed to dignify you and I failed to properly take your feelings into consideration so the harm that might have been done is negated because in my mistake I failed to uh, communicate the right message to uh, regarding her feelings and herself but by fixing the mistake or addressing the mistake I corrected that didn't I so mistakes aren't that really that big of a deal when you're a healthy parent because you understand the nature of the mistake. You can negate that. You can address that. You can communicate the right thing to your children. Let them know and see that you perfectly see where the mistake was. Uh, the incorrect or the unhealthy messaging 
that you might have communicated unintentionally to them. Let's see. Anything else I can share with you here to close the show? Yes, a poem. Here's a poem attributed. I found it on the internet, and then I tried looking for it again, uh, somewhere. I tried to look for it in different from different sources, and I couldn't really verify without any doubt whatsoever that Charles Bukowski really wrote this. But maybe you can. So. I found this. This is attributed to Charles Bukowski. It's called They Are Everywhere. And it's been a while since I read you a poem. So here we go on this breezy, unusually warm autumn day. They are everywhere. The tragedy sniffers are all about. They get up in the morning and begin to find things wrong. And they fling themselves into a rage about it. A rage that lasts until bedtime, where even there they twist in their insomnia, not able to rid their mind of the petty obstacles they have encountered. They feel set against. It's a plot, and by being constantly angry they feel that they are constantly right. You see them in traffic, honking wildly at the slightest infraction cursing, spewing their invectives. You feel them in lines, at banks, at supermarkets, at movies. They are pressing at your back, walking on your heels. They are impatient to a fury. They are everywhere and into everything, these violently unhappy souls. Actually, they are frightened never wanting to be wrong. They lash out incessantly. It is a malady, an illness of that breed. The first one I saw like that was my father. And since then, I have seen a thousand fathers, ten thousand fathers, wasting their lives in hatred, tossing their lives into the cesspool and ranting on Charles Bukowski they are everywhere is that a poem about evil people not necessarily it's a poem about unhealthy people people who dislike themselves people who are deeply dissatisfied with themselves and don't know it I know because I was once the subject of this poem and I'm not anymore and you don't have to be and neither does anybody else. Some people are by choice, but not the majority of people. The majority of people are simply unhealthy. And by becoming healthy, they can escape being the subject of this poem. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Friday to you. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Do something nice for yourselves this weekend. And uh, I plan to relax for a couple of days, and I'm going to get right back to re-recording fresh Brand new spanking video for the Last Symptom Fundamentals course. I'm excited for all newcomers to the course that they'll get to uh, experience the uh, the heightened quality of that. And so uh, that's what I'll be doing. 
I hope you all take care of yourselves, and thanks for joining me this week. Take care.